So guess what we're going to talk about this morning? Grace. Yeah. And let me ask you a question. How would you describe it? How would you describe God's grace to someone who didn't know what grace was? In fact, that exercise is a pretty good exercise to do with your family. If you still got kids at home or if it's just you and your spouse, whatever, just maybe sometime this week, sit everybody down, give them a piece of paper and say, draw God's grace. What does it mean to you? What does it look like in your life? Because uh, oftentimes our kids, you know, they hear about words like that. You know, grace is one of those words we use at church. It's a churchy word. It's part of our Christian lingo. But it, it kind of remains a little bit unclear and undefined. And I promise you that God has gone to great lengths to make sure that we clearly understand what his grace is all about. In fact, 101 times in Paul's 13 letters, he mentions the idea of grace. So grace is something that I don't think we understand naturally, but the Holy Spirit has revealed through these different men that he's inspired to write scripture the importance of it in our lives. And so you heard those people in the video talk about grace. What is not something you earn, it's a gift you receive. And certainly we have those concepts in our mind, but I hope this morning to kind of bring some clarity to, to this idea. We're in this series called How Much More? And we're basically looking at how God has used that phrase, different parts of the New Testament specifically, to express his character. You remember I asked you a couple of weeks ago, the most important question maybe that anybody ever asked themselves is, what is God really like? What is he like? Well, we talked about his heart. We've talked about uh, different characteristics of his heart. We've talked about his love last week, about how much he values every single one of us. And today we're going to talk about his grace. And so I want you to find your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at a few verses there together. So if you have your Bibles, you can stand with me out of reverence for God and his word. And I'll read aloud as you follow along silently. And if you're watching online this morning, you can take your copy of God's word or just look on the screens here. And I'm going to begin in verse number six of chapter five of Romans, where Paul says this, for while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood we shall be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've now received this reconciliation through him. Thank you this morning. You can be seated. As we look at this passage, we see several things about God's grace, but I think maybe one of the best definitions that I ever heard about what God's grace really is was by a former professor of mine, a retired professor at Southwestern Theological Seminary, Bert Dominey, who said that grace is God's love experienced as a gift. Now, a lot of times people confuse gifts in our culture. You know, it's like send in your gift this month and I'll send you something back, right? Ministries are even guilty of that. That's not a gift. When you give somebody something, it's not that there's any expectation that you'll return that or that you'll pay for it in any way. A gift is just a gift. It's free. It doesn't cost the, the recipient anything. It's, it's free to that person. Well, I, love that, I love that Dr. Domini's definition includes that idea of a gift because the Greek word for grace is often the same word we use for gift. It's, it's a similar idea. So God's grace obviously is a gift. But to me, maybe a more practical definition is this. Grace is the way that love acts. When you love someone, how do you treat them? You treat them with grace. And all the things that you do for them because you love them 
could be called grace. And we talked about last week that God's love for us is amazing, that it's personal, that he values supremely, he says, every single person, every one of you have incredible supreme value to God. He thinks of you that way. He knows you intimately, knows you personally, knows everything that's going on in your life. And he cares about you in that way. And when you understand that, then you begin to understand this idea of grace. So this morning, I want to just draw three points out of this passage for you this morning, because we're talking about how God loves us, the way that grace acts. He proves his love for us, first of all, with a plan. And the Bible talks about this plan that God had, the appointed moment. And that suggests that Paul even says here, this inconceivable idea. And the idea is this, he says, well, okay, you might find somebody, if you search high and low, you might find somebody who is willing to die for a good person, right? You find a good person, somebody who's morally upright, somebody who's loving back to you, whatever. And if you were put in a situation where you had to die for them, that's conceivable. And for most of us, then he goes on to say, but how much more then? Because it's inconceivable that somebody would do that for their enemy. Now, you know, most of us have grown up post-Jesus. All of us have grown up post-Jesus. And so we've grown up with this idea that, yeah, Jesus gave his life for his enemies. But before Jesus died on the cross, B.C., before Christ, that's a kind of an unusual concept. Not a concept that was common in people's thinking. So what Paul's saying is, here's a new idea for you. Yeah, somebody might die for a friend, for a loved one, but it's inconceivable that someone would die for someone who constantly offends and seeks to hurt them. That's an inconceivable idea. And he talks about us in that passage, and he says that we're weak, that we're sinful, that we're ungodly. Those are the words he uses to describe people. And then he even says that we're God's enemies. Now, I don't know anybody who wants to be God's enemy. And most people don't think they are. In fact, most people outside of Jesus Christ wouldn't describe themselves as God's enemy. There's some people that might obviously say, oh, I don't like God, I'm not for God, I'm anti-God, I don't believe in God, whatever. But the vast majority of people who are outside of Jesus probably wouldn't describe themselves as God's enemies, and yet that's the way the Bible describes him. If you don't know Jesus this morning, bad news, you're God's enemy. And you did that with your sinfulness. Now, I thought we were talking about grace. <laughs> we are. Hang on. <laughs> okay. But that's what, that's what he's saying. This idea is inconceivable that someone would give their life for somebody who is their enemy, who offends them constantly. So that's, that's part of the idea of this plan, that he does this inconceivable thing. He sends his son to die for you. But the second part of the plan that I think is really meaningful is that it's intentional. He says that the appointed time, there was a set time when God said, I'm going to send Jesus Christ to the earth. In fact, Paul said this in Galatians. He said that uh, at the right time, when the time came to completion, God sent his son. So at just the right time, not the spur of the moment, not reactionary, God knew exactly when he would send Jesus Christ to the earth to do an amazing thing for us. That's grace. Let me ask you this. What's the most important thing you ever planned for? Maybe... Uh, maybe your retirement, maybe your anniversary, maybe your wedding. Ladies, right? You plan for that wedding. Months and months go into planning for 20 minutes of a wedding, you know, right? And the marriage is way more important than the wedding, but the wedding's important, but most of the effort goes into planning the wedding. When I, you know, engagements, people go nuts now with planning their engagements. And I think it's kind of cool, but like they have the family in the bushes, the cameras in the bushes, you know, everybody's waiting. The poor girl has no idea it's about to happen. They're on a dock somewhere with a candle and everybody's watching and it goes on YouTube and it's viral and everybody sees it, you know. It wasn't that way when I got engaged. In fact, I was 
my engagement's nothing to really talk about. I asked my wife to marry me and she said, no, that's the, that's the truth. <laughs> True story. She's like, I don't think we're ready to get married. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, that's not the answer you say when somebody gets on their knee and asks you to marry them. You don't say, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I said, look, here's the deal. I had to go preach a revival. I asked her on like a Thursday. I had to leave on Friday and go preach this revival this weekend in South Texas. And I said, I'm coming back. And when I come back Sunday night, I'm driving straight to your house. And I'm not taking no for an answer right now. But if, it's, if your answer is no Sunday night, then we're done. It's over with. Ultimatum. I can't just be your friend. We can't go back to that. So, so I got, did the revival. Couldn't think about anything but that whole thing the whole weekend. Is she going to say yes? Is she going to say yes? I get back. I drive straight to her house like 2 in the morning, knock on her door. She answers the door. She goes, let's get married. I said, yes, let's get married. Right now. Get your clothes on. Let's go. Let's go get married right now. So my engagement was nothing to write home about. There was no video evidence, thankfully, of it. But... But I, so I thought, okay, I got to do something sometime to really, you know, kind of compete. All these people are doing these great things, you know, and I'm, my one's terrible. So my 20th anniversary, I planned out. You guys are going to hate me for this. Men in the room, you're going to hate me for this. It was awesome. It was, I've never done anything this great in my life, I don't think, okay? Six or seven months before, the, before our wedding anniversary, which is in December. So in the summer, this time of year, I go over to Tyler and I go to a jewelry store and I buy a diamond and I buy a ring and I put the two together and I've been like siphoning money off the family budget secretly to make this work, you know. She didn't know anything about it. You're not supposed to do that, but it was for her. So, you know, when she found out, she wasn't upset about it. And so I got this thing all together and got the ring and then our anniversary is on December 22nd. We got married at Green Acres Baptist Church over in Tyler. So green carpet, red poinsettias, that was our wedding. And there's a very, very bad VHS tape of that uh, from the balcony that a friend of mine shot with his little camera that he had. But there's video evidence of that, but it's kind of blurry and stuff. So, so I planned this whole night. It's a Wednesday night and uh, we go to Tyler. We're going to eat. She didn't know anything about the ring. She thinks we're just going to go eat and hang out in Tyler. So we go to our favorite restaurant. After we got done eating, I said, hey, you know, let's drive over to Green Acres and just see if it's open. It's Wednesday night before Christmas. It's not going to be open, you know. But I had, I'd called ahead, and I actually found the guy who's their audiovisual guy, and I said, I'll pay you, man. Would you, would you be there in the sanctuary, in the audio booth, with the video queued up and the screen down, and when we come in, don't turn any lights on. We're just going to come in. We're going to talk a little bit. And I'm going to say something like, wouldn't it be great if we could watch the video right now? And I want you to start that puppy right then, okay? So, man, we drive by the church and all the lights are off. And she's not really into it. I'm like, honey, let's just go inside. I mean, we're just going to relive this moment, you know? And she's like, okay. I'm like, you're killing me. This is not what this is supposed to be like. Here we go. So we get out, we go in, we sit on the front row, and we're just sitting there. We're talking about the wedding, and we're reminiscing about it, and her little niece's petted the dress the entire time during the ceremony. My other nieces cried the entire time during the ceremony. And we're laughing about that. And I said, wouldn't it be awesome if we could watch that video right now? And I mean on cue, that guy starts the video. And so the video comes up. It's a terrible video, but we could at least kind of see ourselves. And we watch it for 20 minutes. As soon as the video's over, I get down in front of her on one knee. I pop out that little velvet box and pop it open. And I say, how about 20 more? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how you do a 20th anniversary right there, okay? Never again. I'm done. I'm out. Now, listen, why am I telling you that story? It's one of my favorite stories because I actually did something good, you know, but I'm telling you that story because I started planning that months before. It, it, it couldn't have worked if I'd have waited till the day of. There's no way it would have worked. It took a plan. It took a lot of coordination. What I'm saying to you is all that was intentional because of my love for her. Now, 
The Bible says that God planned for you. He proved his love for you with an amazing plan. At just the right moment, he sent his son into the world to die for you. That's how important you are to him. He's intentional in his love for you. The word here for proof, it's two words in the original language. It means to stand together. And the idea, it's a legal term. It means that the facts stand together to prove something. And so what Paul is saying, God has put the facts together. They stand together in a way to prove his love for you. That word demonstrate or prove in your Bible means that the facts of God's love stand together to prove it. So that's the only conclusion you can come to is that God did all that. He planned all that because he values you supremely. That is grace. It's the way love acts. That's what love does. Love makes a plan for you. So that's important this morning as you understand that. So my question for you is, are you convinced of God's grace for you? Are you convinced of his love for you? Do you see that he went to all that trouble because of his great love for you? Second this morning, what what love does, how love demonstrates itself through grace is that God pursues you with a purpose. He not only has a plan to prove his love, but he pursues you with a purpose. And and so Paul talks about some verses in these verses here, 9 and 10, just some rich theological meaning I'm going to talk to you about. But go back with me just a second to the Garden of Eden. And I want you to think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. It's perfect. And the Bible says that they disobeyed God. They distrusted God. They began to think, well, maybe God has a different motive. And they did something they shouldn't have done. They disobeyed. And they went and hid themselves. And the Bible says that God came pursuing them in the cool of the day. From the very beginning, from Genesis all the way to the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, you see God pursuing people over and over and over again. God's pursuing you this morning. If you're here and you don't know him, even if you are somebody who knows him, he's still pursuing you. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to be in a relationship with you and he's proved that. So the garden is a picture really of what he wants from all of us, walking with God in the cool of the day. Ultimately, someday, when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you get to go to a place that's even better than the garden, a place of perfection called heaven, where your relationship will no longer be separated by time and space. But for now, that's the way it is. So Adam and Eve, they messed up. And what happened? As soon as they messed up, they were separated, physically separated from the presence of God. They were kicked out of the garden because of sin in their life. That's a picture of what happens in our lives too. But God pursues them even in that situation. They don't pursue him. He pursues them. That's what he does in our life as well. So I want to talk about these three theological ideas that are found in these verses. The first is the word propitiation. I know you go, what are you talking about? Maybe you're familiar with that that term. Well, he uses the phrase here, by his blood. And that's very significant. Every time in the Old Testament that God was going to punish people or take out his wrath on people, blood was the only thing that satisfied him and averted or diverted that punishment from them. Think about the Passover. You remember that story when the people of Israel were to put blood over their doorposts and the destroying angel, when it came through, would pass over their house and not destroy them. The people that had blood on their doorpost would be freed and spared from the wrath of God. Then think about the Day of Atonement. And you guys were here maybe back at Easter and you saw Pastor Glenn do the cross service where he goes to the Old Testament. He describes how All those types in the Old Testament are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but the Day of Atonement was meant to be just that, at one minute. It was meant to bring forgiveness for the people's sins for that year and bring them back into oneness with God, to make them at one again. Because when we sin, 
It creates separation. It creates distance in our, in our relationship with God. And so the, the Day of Atonement was about blood. They, they would let the blood of an animal, and then the priest would sprinkle that on the people on himself, and he would go into the Holy Holies and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. Always blood was involved. Well, in Jesus Christ, you have the completion of that idea. 1 John 4.10 says this, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent him to be the, what does that mean? Propitiation basically means a satisfying sacrifice. For example, in Passover, when the Lord saw the blood of that animal on that doorpost, he was satisfied and he passed over those people's houses and they didn't suffer wrath. Well, in Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying is because of the blood of Jesus Christ, God is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied when he took it out on Jesus on the cross. And so you can be made right with God through the sacrifice, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way. And so I think about this often. Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he said, no one can come to the Father unless he comes through me. That's very exclusive. Uh, Paul said in Acts, so there's no other name um, given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. No other way, no other name. That sounds very exclusive. That sounds does that sound mean or arrogant? It's biblical. It's not either one. You can't have a relationship with God. You can't have God's wrath satisfied by being, some other, being part of some other religion, following some other religious teaching or philosophy. That won't cut it because that won't satisfy the wrath of God. Only the blood of Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, can satisfy the wrath of, of the Lord. So here's a question to ask someone that you may be engaging who's part of another religion. And they're counting on their participation in this religion and the good works they're doing to be able to get them to heaven, to avoid hell and avoid judgment and condemnation. Just ask them this simple question. How are you planning to satisfy God's wrath? What are you going to do to do that? Well, I'm just going to be good. That's not going to do it. It's not going to satisfy his wrath. He's a holy God. None of us really get that. He's a holy, perfect God. Somebody has to satisfy his wrath. There's only one way to do that. Jesus died. His blood is the only way. And that's a great thing to share with someone because the Holy Spirit will use that in their life. So first of all, you see this idea of propitiation. He pursues you with this purpose. So hang on. Second word he uses here is this idea of justification, declaring you righteous. Now you may go, well, am I righteous? I don't feel righteous. I still sin. I still live unrighteously sometimes. He's not talking about your condition. He's talking about your state of being, that you go basically from being unrighteous, unright with God, to when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, he makes you right with God. He makes you his child. He adopts you. He brings you into his family. He changes your state. He makes you right with him now, not because you deserve it or because you even practice that, but because of who he is. That's what justification means. It puts you in a right relationship with him. Paul said this in Galatians. Know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Let me ask you a question. What if you'd never sinned? I know, you've got to use your imagination for that one. <laughs> never sinned. So you have no guilt. You have no shame. You have no apprehension about approaching God, no, no fear, no worry, right? That's what it means to be justified. It's, you could think of it this way, justified, never sinned. Because now 
being made right with God, being made right, righteous with God, my sin can no longer change my state of being. It can hurt my fellowship, but it can't change my relationship. That's wonderful news. So God's love is shown through the fact that he sent his son to be a perfect satisfying sacrifice through propitiation. And then he justifies me. He justifies you when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He makes us right with him so that we can have a close relationship with him. And if the highest authority in the universe declares that you're right with him, you are. Whether you feel it or not. He's the highest judge of the universe, and he has said that in Jesus Christ, you can be justified, a completely new state. So the idea of propitiation, the idea of justification, and then he talks about this word reconciliation. Reconciliation, what are we talking about? Well, he says here, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. It's the idea of going from enemy to friend. Now, I, you know, you probably have examples. We can all think of people that we know that no longer get along with each other. They're, they're un, they have unreconcilable differences, maybe. We talk about that. They're, they're separated because of something that happened in their relationship. I've told you guys that my dad and his brother were business partners, and after a period of time, they, they didn't work. And they got really ugly with each other, said some terrible things to each other, hurt each other's feelings deeply, the kind of things you should never say to somebody they said to each other. And my dad actually recorded it, and he would listen to it over and over and over and just seethe in bitterness towards his brother. And they're both believers in Jesus Christ. But for most of their adult life, they were unreconciled. And so because they were unreconciled, we stopped going to their house. I stopped hanging out with my cousins. I stopped seeing my aunt. I mean, it was like, nope, there's a split there. Well, my dad got sick with cancer and he knew he was going to die. And so he knew he wanted to reconcile with, my, with his brother. And so he called his brother to come to the hospital. And they reconciled their relationship. And they said they were sorry for the terrible things they'd said to each other. That's what reconciliation looks like. From alienation to closeness, to friendship. So the Bible describes, I said a minute ago, describes every person who's outside, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who's outside of faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible describes you as God's enemy. Do you want to be the enemy of God? You are. That's the state of being you are in outside of Jesus Christ. But what he wants to do is make you a friend. He wants to bring you into close intimacy in a relationship with you. And that is the purpose he pursues you for. It's the relationship. We talk about this a lot at Moberly, but it's true. God wants to have a personal relationship with every single one of you, with me. He wants it to be close. He doesn't want it to be alienated. He doesn't want there to be this distance in the relationship. It's this beautiful picture of an enemy becoming a friend. So his, his blood satisfies God's wrath against you, and then he totally justifies you and makes you right in your relationship with him. With nothing, with nothing can change that going forward. And he reconciles you, makes you his friend. That's the picture of what Paul's talking about here. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 5. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore... We're ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's as though the Lord is saying, I want you to be reconciled to me. He's pleading for you. He doesn't need to be reconciled to you. He hasn't sinned against you, but all of us have sinned against him. And he's begging you to be reconciled to him. And then he says, I've given you the same ministry for you to go beg people to be reconciled to God. Now, we don't want to beg anybody to do anything. We'd, all, we'd probably call that manipulation if I was too emotional. I'm afraid that in our engagement, in our personal evangelism, if, if you ever even do that, if you ever talk to anybody about Jesus, that we're real logical, 
and almost stoic about it, like, well, you know, you ought to think about this. This is something you might want to think about doing instead of going, listen, you're going to hell. You are the enemy of God, and I don't want that for you. That might require a tear on my part if I really care for the person to go, stop. I'm begging you, get right with God. I'm begging you, be reconciled to God. Here's how you can do that. Don't you think that's missing from our evangelism? Knock on the door and say, hey, thinking about coming to church anytime soon, you know, maybe you come to church and the preacher will tell you about Jesus. And that's, that's okay, but it's missing this passion that Paul talks about here that God demonstrates for us. And that is that he loves us so much that he is pleading with us to come back to him, to, to get our lives reconciled with him. I, I you know, we, we think about people who beg, people who have cardboard signs and that kind of thing. I don't usually see those people begging, honestly, but I have witnessed it in my life. There was a guy that, when I was about eight, my dad was taking me and my brother to school, and this, this guy kind of pulled us over and got out of his car. He was a dressed businessman. He came over to my dad's window. My dad rolled his window down, and he was frantic. And I was like, what's going on here? This is kind of weird. Eight o'clock in the morning, you know, this guy. And he's like, John, my dad's name is John. He's like, John, please, please don't change insurance agents. This was my dad's insurance agent. <laughs> and he literally was begging. I mean, he was in tears begging my dad. I guess he didn't want my dad to change insurance agents, you know, and he was literally begging my dad. And I remember going, this is weird. This is awkward to watch this grown man plead with my dad not to move businesses, you know. Have you ever witnessed that when anybody shared their faith? Probably not. But that's exactly what Paul says we ought to be doing, begging people to be reconciled. There ought to be some passion in our voice. That's emotional, not to manipulate anyone, but just to say, look, you have no idea. What are you going to do when you stand before the wrath of God? What's your plan for that? How are you going to satisfy the wrath of God? And you don't have a plan. And if you have one, it's not any good unless it includes Jesus Christ. So let me tell you the gospel. Let me tell you the good news, because the good news is there is a plan. God's already put it all together. What you have to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ, and it can be yours, and you can be free, and you can be reconciled. And that's what God's really after in our lives, is to bring us into this relationship. It's a beautiful picture. Paul says, goes on to say this in Romans 5, 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. He's talking about Adam. For if by one man's trespass many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ? How much more? If, if death came through one man, how much more will the grace of God abound through Jesus Christ? It's a great thing to think about because that's what he wants us to see out of this. So there's progression of action here. He's making us right through propitiation. He's declared us righteous through justification. And then now he reconciles us and makes us his friend. And most of us like that. We want to be the friend of God. I want to be on God's side. I want God on my side. I want to be in that close relationship with him. That's what you were made for. That's what he designed all of us for. So how does grace act? How does love act? It, it, it demonstrates his love by the fact that he made a plan. It demonstrates his love by the fact that he pursues you with a purpose. And then third this morning, he preserves you with protection, the Bible says. It, he says here, salvation is protection from wrath. It's protection from the judgment or condemnation of God. It's, it's true that, that, that people don't really believe anymore in the culture in this idea of a judgment, a day of judgment, or a day of condemnation, of wrath of the Lord. People laugh at that. And it's sort of an antiquated idea. You know why? Because they don't hear anybody talking to them about it anymore. I remember when I was younger, we talked about it at church a lot. People in my position got up and talked about hell 
They talked about condemnation. They talked about the bad news. And look, I know we don't want to talk about the bad news. I get that's not very fun. But the good news doesn't sound very good unless you know what the bad news is. And the bad news is true. This week I was listening to uh, uh, just a secular radio station. I was driving into work and I was just flipping the radio stations around. And I was, uh, these guys, you know, there's, they talk. All these DJs talk in the morning about stuff. And I just kind of listened to see what they were talking about. And they were talking about older people. Um, and how they have long lives when they, when they get to die when they're older, how they've had these wonderful long lives, and then they get to look forward to going to heaven, and they're just at peace. Some article this guy had read about how older people have this sense of peace at the end of their lives. It's not true for everybody, by the way, but he was talking about it like it was. And then all three of them were kind of bantering back and forth, and the assumption was that everyone is going to heaven. That's what our culture believes. They don't believe in hell. You know why? Because none of us are talking about it. And in my adult life, I've witnessed that change. When I was a kid, pastors talked about hell. But since I've been in ministry, I've, I would even say it's been so slow, it's imperceptible. But now think about it. Outside of even the church, do we ever talk about hell? Hell's just a crazy idea. It's a bad, archaic idea. It's a bad idea. And it, we don't want to scare anybody into getting saved. Listen, I can't think of anything scarier in my life than dying and going to hell. Because Jesus even said, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world here and you lose it all in the end. There's no profit in that. But we who follow Jesus Christ are not talking to people about it. We've taken that out of the conversation. And so we just assume people already know that and they don't. Or they stop believing it because they go, Christians don't even believe in hell anymore. And there is going to be a day of judgment. Salvation doesn't mean anything unless you're saved from something. And what he's talking about here is wrath. He uses the word wrath. I don't want to face the wrath of God. The Bible says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't, he is a God of love, but listen, he's a holy God. And he, I don't want to face him outside of Jesus Christ as his enemy. Do you? So salvation is, is freedom. This is what the word means. Delivered out of danger into safety. Rescued from destruction and brought into divine safety. That's how much God loves you. He loves you enough to preserve you by protecting you by letting you know that once you know Jesus as your Savior, you're protected from the wrath of God. You never have to worry about it again. Praise the Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul said. No condemnation. So don't get comfortable in that. Don't get free of that. Remember that and know that that's grace in your life. That's grace that you're free from that. You know, I had uh, kind of a weird thing happen this week and perfect timing, God's timing. I got this little notice in the mail about my car. And there's a recall, safety recall on the car that I own. And this is what it says in its big, bold, capital letters, urgent, urgent, airbag inflator safety recall, okay? The propellant in the driver's airbag can deteriorate from any combination of, of things. This deterioration can cause the propellant to burn quicker than normal, creating more pressure than the bag can sustain. In the event of a crash, listen to this, the driver's airbag may explode with sharp metal fragments, causing serious injury or death to the vehicle occupants. That's my car. <laughs> I've been driving this car for years. How long has this been the case? So really, I haven't been safe, but I didn't know it, right? And so they send me this thing in the mail and I'm like, wow, okay, I'm, I call the dealership. I'm bringing it over this week. You know what I did? I parked the car. Because I've never actually caused a wreck. Well, I don't know if I've caused a wreck. I've never had a wreck. Let me say it that way, okay? 
But some of you might run into me and then what's going to happen in my car is total chaos, right? After that, it's apocalypse. I mean, it's just like fragments and all kinds of terrible things are going to go on in my car. So I did something about it. As soon as I figured out I wasn't safe, I, did, I took action. Parked the car, drove the truck this morning, okay? Who knows what's wrong with it? I have no idea. I'm not aware. I don't know. Now, why do I say that? Because Jesus Christ came to give you protection from wrath. You don't have to worry about being judged and condemned someday when you die and stand before him if Jesus Christ is your Savior. But listen to me. If he's not your Savior, you are not safe this morning because you don't know when somebody's going to run into you. You don't know when your heart's going to stop beating. You don't know when your last breath, and I don't either. But how can you live with that danger in your life and not do something about it? You can do something about it this morning. You can actually put your faith in Jesus Christ and he promises you that he will save you and you will be protected from the wrath that is to come for so many people in the future. You can be saved this morning. Many of you already are and that's something to rejoice about. Paul even goes on to talk about that in the last verse that we rejoice in that. But for some of you this morning, you're not safe and now you know it. I've been talking about it and you're not safe. You're God's enemy this morning. And he wants you to be his friend. In fact, he's done everything to make that possible. So this morning, I'm going to ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to give you a chance to do something about that right now. The only thing you can do about that. And that is put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning, if that's you and you'd say, I, I need that, I'm I don't want to die without Jesus Christ. I don't want to be God's enemy. I want to be saved. I want to be safe. Yes, you do. There's nothing more important you could do with your life than begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lead you in a, in a time of calling on the name of the Lord, doing exactly what the Bible says. That's prayer. Now, there's nothing magical about the words that I'm going to lead you in this prayer, but there's nothing magical about these words. Okay? There's no salvation prayer spe specifically in the Bible, but many people call on the name of the Lord to save them. So that's what you can do this morning, whether you're here, whether you're watching online, right where you are, wherever you're watching, you can call upon the name of the Lord today and he promises that he will save you. He says, everyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out because I've come down to do the will of my father. And the will of my father is all who believe in me and receive me will have eternal life. And so this morning, that's you. You could have eternal life. You could turn all this around and have safety and have protection from the Lord. And that's what he wants for you. So with nobody looking around but me, if that's you and you'd say, that's me, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I want to make sure this morning that I'm saved. Or I know I'm not saved and I want to be saved. Would you just hold your hand up this morning, wherever you are? Let me have a chance to see you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. I mean, I'm the only one looking around, but it really wouldn't matter if we were all looking around. This is such an important decision. You shouldn't care anybody. No, who, who knows that about you? It's that important. And if you pray to receive Christ... I'm going to ask you to tell somebody about that later today because you need to express your faith. It's not a secret thing. So if you want to be saved this morning, just, just repeat these things after me to the Lord. Call upon him. Dear Lord, dear God in heaven, just say that to him. I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. I know it. But I'm sorry that I've offended you, that I've been your enemy. I want to be your friend. I want to be saved. I don't want sin. I don't want any of it. I don't... I, I reject it. I want you more than anything this morning. Come into my life and save me. Help me live in a way that honors you. Help me understand all that you have for me and, and your great love for me. 
Thank you for sending Jesus for me. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.